take your copy of God's Word with me again this morning. Open it once more to the epistle to the Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 7. We'll be in the whole of that chapter today. I am going to attempt something that may prove foolish. I hope not. I'm going to try to do in one sermon what most commentators and other scholars deal with in at least three to four different sections. Yeah. Uh, up to this point, we've spent uh, several, several weeks uh, in Hebrews looking at this connection that the author of Hebrews is making between that uh, mysterious Old Testament figure Melchizedek, that king priest of Salem, uh, and Jesus, who is our great high priest. And we are going to see in chapter 7, the author of Hebrews round out that, that illustration, round out that comparison that he is making. Today we will see from Hebrews chapter 7 that Jesus is a priest who is fitting for us. I don't normally do this, but today I brought a prop. And most of the time when I'm speaking with people about uh, uh, preaching and that sort of thing, I tell them, if you ever feel like you need to take a prop on stage, just stop and start all over again. But today I brought a prop. (laughs) I hold in my hand uh, uh, a very specific tool. Uh, It may be hard for you to see. It's about a one-inch cube. Uh, it's probably made out of stainless steel, but it has kind of a brass color. There's multiple different knobs on different faces of this cube. If you, if you know what this cube is for, just raise your hand. Oh, good. This will be fun. This, dear friends, is a brake piston compression tool. And if you have ever tried to change the rear brakes on your probably modern vehicle with a mechanical parking brake, you have yet had to use a tool or something like this. Uh, Many modern-day vehicles use, uh, for the the parking brake, they use the rear brakes to engage uh, that that parking brake. So when you pull up on that lever, um, your vehicle engages the the rear brakes on your car so uh, so it doesn't roll out of place after you've parked it. Uh, The problem is, when you go to change the pads on those brakes, you have to use this tool, or a tool like this, to push the piston uh, on the brake caliper back into where it came from, so you can put new pads on that have uh, a greater thickness to them. Uh, Those rear brake pistons have on them, very often, a couple or three or four different little notches, different little peg holes or whatever, that that you have to get something into and ratchet that piston back down in. Now, on your front pistons, some of you don't even care what I'm talking about, but those of you that like to change brakes, you're you're, you're following with me, so that's good. On your front brakes, you can just take a C-clamp or maybe some vice grips if they open up wide enough, and you can just squeeze that piston back into the caliper, but not so on your rear brakes that uh, that are attached to your mechanical parking brake. You got to ratchet that puppy back down into the caliper in which it goes. And in order to do so, you've got to have a tool like this. Now, you can try to get a pair of needle nose pliers or some vice grips or something to fit into the little notches that are in there, and you can try to get enough leverage on there to, to both twist and press that, uh, that, that piston back into the caliper, but it's really, really hard to do so. I would say nigh unto impossible because what you really need is a tool like this. Now, a tool like this, a simple tool, like I said, it's about a one-inch square uh, cube, uh, goes for about $8.67 on Amazon Prime with free two-day shipping. I know because I bought it. And it's a handy little tool. It's got a little square hole on each side in which a a, a, a three-eighths inch uh, socket fits into. You just put your... uh, your, your, uh, your, uh, what is that thing called? Socket wrench. Oh my goodness. Uh, nobody, don't ask me to ever fix your brakes because it's clear that I have no idea what I'm talking about. Put your socket wrench in the end and you just press that into that piston. You press hard and you turn and in it goes and off you go to fix your brakes. But without this tool, 
without this very simple but very specific tool, that job, even if you try to do it many other ways, becomes incredibly complicated and you usually end up making a bigger mess than you started with in the beginning. In Hebrews chapter 7, the author of Hebrews, in summing up his comparison between Jesus and Melchizedek, is going to say to us that Jesus, as the priest and the king, after the order of Melchizedek, He's the guarantor of a a new covenant by his blood. And he is the priest we all really need. He is the very specific priest that can only do a specific job. That tried to do any other way, attempted any other way, leads to disaster. The point of Hebrews chapter 7 is this, that Jesus is the only priest that you need. Jesus is the only priest that you need. In light of this truth, I would hope that each of us would come to evaluate and then to be done with other religious tools, other religious mediums, other priests who cannot deliver on their promises. Now, we're going to read all of Hebrews chapter 7, but that's kind of a long chapter. And I want to start with with, with where we're going to end uh, because I think it's sometimes good to lead with the punch of the argument. So would you stand with me? And we're going to read together just Hebrews chapter 7 verses 26 through 28 and then we'll get back to the rest of it before. Kyle, I'm sorry I didn't prep you for this. Hebrews 26 through 28 7, 26 through 28 says this, that it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Jesus is the only priest you need. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now we're going to get to those verses we just read in a moment, but I'd like for you to just keep that in mind as where we are going, where the author of Hebrews is ultimately taking us in this chapter. He's going to do so uh, by moving through a progression. He's going to talk about Melchizedek. He's going to talk about some Levitic, the, the, the Levitical priests after the order of Aaron, the brother of Moses. And then he's going to speak specifically about Jesus. Look first at verses 1 through 10 or so of chapter 7 as the author of Hebrews unfolds for us the meaning of Melchizedek. There he says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and he blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever." See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of his spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, although these are also descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, receives tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes and offerings received by mortal, uh, are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. 
One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes and paid tithes through Abraham, uh, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Well, finally, after several chapters and different references, particularly to Psalm 110, uh, uh, where uh, the Lord says, uh, through David, I have sworn to you, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This uh, comparison between Jesus and Melchizedek is, is now finally coming to a head. And the author of Hebrews reviews for his audience the person, the historical character of Melchizedek from Genesis chapter 14. You could go back and you could read about him if you wanted to. What the author is saying here, the meaning of Melchizedek, is that Melchizedek is an historical character who, as verse 3 says, resembles Jesus. He resembles the Son of God. He resembles the Son of God in several ways. First of all, he is the king of righteousness. That's literally what his name means. The Hebrew word uh, melech is the word for king. The Hebrew word zedek is the word for righteousness. His name is Melchizedek, the king of righteousness. And he's also the king of a city called Salem, which was probably ancient Jerusalem. That word Salem sounds a lot like the Hebrew word for shalom, which means peace, wholeness, harmony. He is king of righteousness by name and king of peace by his occupation. He is, in the course of the narrative of Genesis 14, without father or mother or genealogy. And he is not ever said to have died. Now, this doesn't mean that Melchizedek is immortal, but the way that his story is told in Genesis 14, he appears without being born and he disappears without dying. It doesn't mean he's immortal, but the author of Hebrews is taking the way that Melchizedek is talked about, and now he's saying that resembles Jesus, the Son of God. Melchizedek is like a, like a sign on your way to Yellowstone National Park that, that may have an illustration of uh, Half Dome or, or some other uh, uh, physical geological aspect of, of the park there at Yellowstone, so, some, some geological monument. You may see it sketched out on a sign in sort of illustrated manner. But when you get to the actual park and you see the thing face to face, it is similar to the illustration on the sign that you saw driving into the park or toward the park, but yet it is far grander in appearance. In the same way, Melchizedek appearing before Jesus is like an illustration of what the Son of God, the high priest forever, will look like when he comes, you see. He resembles the Son of God. His priesthood continues forever. He is a priest, Melchizedek is, but he's not a priest in the way that the Hebrew people knew priests. Hebrew people knew priests as those that had descended from Levi, uh, who, uh, uh, who among his descendants Aaron, the brother of Moses, was the first high priest. Melchizedek is not a Levite. In fact, Melchizedek exists long before Levi was ever a twinkle in his great-grandfather Abraham's eye. Levi descends from Abraham. Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek and was blessed by Melchizedek. So Levi himself is inferior to Melchizedek, as the author says, because his ancestor paid tithes and was blessed by this king-priest of Salem. Melchizedek, as this historical figure in the Old Testament, resembles in many different ways, but, but only resembles what the Son of God, what Jesus, our great high priest, will look like. This is the meaning of Melchizedek. He is a sign on the road. He is a figure. He is a type of which Jesus will be the realization, the substance of all that he is pointing to. Then in verses 11 through about 19 or so, 
the author of Hebrews speaks about, not now Melchizedek, but he moves to speak about a different kind of priest, the Levites, the law-bound Levites. See how he continues. He says, now if perfection, that is holiness, removal of sins, had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe. He's speaking here of Jesus, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and not in connection with that tribe. I'm sorry, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. Speaking here about the Levites, these Levites who are bound by the law, which was given to them from God through Moses, they are made priests by the law. That is to say, if God had never given the law to Moses in Exodus and and, uh, fleshed it out further in Exodus and then Leviticus, the priests would never exist. There is not a priesthood in Israel apart from the law. The law there in Exodus and Leviticus gives requirements and procedures for the Levites in order to become priests. They are not priests except that the law makes them so. And in fact, you could go this afternoon, as I know you really are excited to do, and read the second half of, Levitic, uh, second half of Exodus and all of Leviticus and there see all the work that the Levites, that the priests were required to do. Now, under the law, the priests... Even though they receive tithes from the people of Israel, they are not superior to the other Israelites. They're only different by distinction of their office. The law that created the Levitical order of the priesthood was given by God in order to show Israel their constant need for grace and forgiveness for sins. How is this so? Well, again, if you read through Leviticus, you see that the constant work of the priests day by day, year in and year out, is sacrificing. Sacrificing animals for the sins of the people. And this sacrificial system, which is basically all the priests did, reminded the Israelites of the cost of their sin, which was death. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. And we see that all over the place in the sacrificial system that God gave to the priests to carry out on behalf of the people. But these sacrifices four sins, while they showed and demonstrated, illustrated the constant need for a substitute to take the penalty for our sin, these sacrifices in and of themselves could never take sins away. There was always going to be, day after day, year after year, a need for sacrifice. Author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, which we'll see in a few weeks, but we'll preview it now. He says this, for since the law has Uh, It was but a shadow of the good things to come. Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. 
For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. This is what is meant by the law being unable to make people perfect. The law of God, while it shows God's grace to his people and gives a means for their forgiveness of sin through having the penalty of their sin passed on to a substitute, an animal in their place, could never take away their sins perfectly. And it was never meant to. The law was meant to be a teacher, to be a tutor, to be, a, to be multiple signs along the road to the Messiah, Jesus, the great high priest who would take away his sins. But because the law is unable to make anyone perfect, because it's unable to take sins away, it is necessary for another kind of priest whose authority doesn't come from the law of Moses given by God to Moses at Sinai. Another priest who, who is not a priest because he came so from the law, but a priest who exists outside of the law. A priest maybe similar to Melchizedek, but better. A priest who would bring about the removal of sins forever. To be perfect, to have your sins removed, requires a priest who doesn't have to make sacrifices for his own sins. That was the case for priests in Israel. They had to sacrifice for their own sins before they could sacrifice for the sins of the people. But have sins taken away, it requires one who will be able to give his own sinless life as a sacrifice. Never to be replaced by another sinful mortal priest. And so now you see where the author of Hebrews is headed, don't you? In the final verses of our passage today, verses 20 through 28, we see... Not Melchizedek, not the Levites, but now the perfect Jesus. Hear what the author says. It was not without an oath, the priesthood that was given. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made, by a, uh, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, and here he's citing again, Psalm 110, verse 4, which he's done several times in the letter already. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Several places already. The author of Hebrews has said that the son, Jesus, is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. But the reality is that Melchizedek is a priest like the son. Melchizedek resembles the son. In this, what we would call the typological sense, Melchizedek being a type for the real substance that is Jesus. Jesus is the one who stands as the the, the one that fulfills all that Melchizedek, all the hope that Melchizedek and his figure in history stirs up in the hearts of the people. Though Jesus' incarnation is historically subsequent to Melchizedek, he's born after Melchizedek exists, Jesus is the true substance of all that that king-priest of Salem from Genesis 14 previewed. Christ's priesthood originates not from family lineage, he wasn't a Levite, but by the oath of God, by the promise of God who declares it so. 
Just as God declared through the law the beginning of the Levitical priesthood, so also does He swear by oath to bring about a new and a better priesthood through His Son. The Levitical priesthood is incapable of bringing righteousness, of taking away sins, though it is very capable at revealing the constant need for sins to be taken away. And so, as chapter 7 verse 12 tells us, a change is made. God makes a change in the priesthood and a change in the law. He gives, he brings, he uh, makes a promise to bring a new priest. And in promising to bring a new priest apart from the law, he is also promising to do away with or make obsolete that, uh, that priesthood that was brought about by the law. When a change in priesthood takes place, the law also changes. And so being made obsolete, when Christ dies for sins and being raised again, the old covenant gives way to the new covenant. Jesus himself, as risen Savior, becoming the guarantor, the, the, the one who will be certain to keep the promise of that new covenant. The new covenant is carried out by not several priests that live and die, but by one singular priest, Jesus, who is descended from a tribe without priests. He comes from Judah, not from Levi, in the truer sense that Melchizedek was without priestly lineage. Jesus is such an enduring high priest forever on account of his indestructible life, the author of Hebrews says. His resurrection from the dead vindicates his eternally perennial priesthood in perfect accord with what God swore to him by oath in Psalm 110. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so in verses 18 through 22, we see the author of Hebrews revisit the fact that Jesus is made a priest by promise from God, by an oath from God, that God cannot change or, or contravene. Contrary to the Levitical priests who were priests by birthright and lineage, Jesus is a priest by the promise of God. Because he's made priest by the direct action of God and apart from his human lineage, his ancestry, he is thus the, the better priest of a better covenant, which surpasses that of the obsolete Mosaic law. Where human priesthood ends with the death of the priest... This is not so with Jesus. He continues forever, being both divine and human, having raised from the dead. Consequently, because he lives forever, he can live forever to do the work of a great high priest forever, which is interceding to the Father, going to God the Father on behalf of those that he represents to him. He lives forever to intercede for us. As a great high priest, he has five things, the author says to us. In verse 26, he is holy, that is, he is set apart for special divine purpose. Jesus is innocent, meaning he has never sinned. He bears no guilt of sin at all. He is unstained, which means he is undefiled. He is without any need for ritual purification before God. He is separated from sinners, not in the sense that he doesn't ever speak with or interact with sinners. Jesus is a friend to sinners, but he is not complicit in the sins of others. He is finally exalted above the heavens. Jesus exists today in a place and with a status that only God himself can. In this way, the author of Hebrews says he is a fitting priest. He's just the right priest for the job. He's just the priest that humanity needs. The author of Hebrews here is stating that this was the perfect plan of God for a priest for mankind. One just like Jesus. He's fitting He's appropriate. 
He is necessary, in part because of all that He is as holy and divine as God, but also in that He performs a singular sacrifice once for all that is sufficient to bring salvation for all sinners and can be completed without any prior need for His own purification. Jesus doesn't have to make sacrifices for His own sins before He presents Himself to God as a sacrifice for ours. If He did, He would be an inferior priest. But because he has no sins for which to pay, he, by his own sinless life, can pay for all of ours. As the fitting great high priest, as the one who gets the job done just the right way, Jesus is the one not appointed in the weakness of sinful flesh, but in the strength of the oath and the promise of God. Not according to the law that created the Levitical priesthood, but apart from that law, independent of that law, greater than that law. He is the Son of God, a perfect priest. Dear friends, He is a perfect priest forever. Jesus is the high priest you really need. Why does this matter to us? Hebrews chapter 7, I think, reveals one great truth to us, and we see it evidenced in different ways in our lives. That great truth that it reveals to us is this, that we are spiritually hardwired to seek out righteousness and priests to help us get there. We are spiritually hardwired to want to be righteous and to find people, intermediaries, that will help us to be right with God. Listen, our consciences convict us of sin and what ought to be on a daily basis. We can look around at the world around, world around us even now and see that things are not the way that they should be. You, created in the image of God, have a moral conscience that tells you that the world is not as it ought to be. Not only that, your conscience convicts you that you are not as you ought to be. That, that you are not righteous, that you are not perfect. I know mine does. And our souls long for righteousness. We see what is right. We know that we aren't. And we desire to be. That's why we have self-help sections at Barnes & Noble. It's why we take to the streets with social actions to try to fix inequities that we see. Because we long for righteousness. We long for justice. God has made it so. Our consciences reveal to us that the world is not the way that it should be. And because our souls long for righteousness, we look for ways to be righteous. But our problem is that our selfish hearts follow powerless priests. We follow powerless priests that tell us that we need to pursue this or that avenue of social justice. And if only we can fix this problem of iniquity for this group of people in our society, then we'll really have it going. Our, our, our consciences tell us that what we really need is this president or that senator or this politician to be elected. And once they're elected, then they'll fix all the problems and we'll be righteous. Things will be good again. The problem is all of these priests that we seek out to lead us to righteousness are powerless, friends. They're powerless because they are, first of all, sinners too. They have broken God's law. They have rejected God's authority in their lives. They are sinners deserving of death, the same as you or I. Further, they are powerless because their idea of righteousness is always incomplete. To be righteous with God is far more than fixing inequities in our social system. 
to be righteous with, with God is, is, is far more than simply adopting this slogan or that slogan or slapping this or that bumper sticker on the back of your car. Real righteousness is a matter of the heart. It's being made right with God. It is having your sins taken away. If the sacrificial system of the Old Testament could not take sins away, what makes us think that this or that political action or voting this way or that way or adopting this or that slogan or living uh, to, to promote this cause or that cause alone can bring us righteousness? Those things cannot make us righteous. Those things cannot take away our sins and neither can the people who lead those. These priests are powerless because they ultimately die and someone else takes their place. Not a one of them is a priest forever. Not a one of them can intercede in our behalf forever. We are spiritually hardwired to seek out righteousness and priests to help us get there. But dear friend, the priests of this world that we try to adopt for ourselves or or raise to a place of prominence to follow them are powerless. So, in light of all that Jesus is, in light of the fact that Jesus is the priest that you really need, that he is a fitting priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. The call to you today, friend, is this. Come to Jesus. He is your perfect and powerful high priest who alone can make you righteous and remove your sin. And you've been made right with God. By faith in Jesus who died for your sins and rose again, you can then, following your great high priest, see all the other needs, all the other issues, all the other hurts and pains and and sources of suffering in the world for what they really are and in the right light. And then you can begin to apply the hope of the gospel to these different uh, situations and different sources of suffering from the right perspective. But if we're not following Jesus first, but only him second, and some other priest of some other movement first, we will always seek to apply that thing to the gospel and not the other way around don't subjugate the gospel to a lesser religious ideology don't submit the gospel to the republican or the democratic party platform don't submit the gospel to what your heart's beat for justice may be in the world but submit all of that to the gospel to jesus the one who sets everything right With Jesus as your focus, you can walk on the water in the midst of the storm of life and pain and suffering and injustice and unrighteousness all around you. But with your eyes not fixed on Him, the waves will overtake you. Your focus will be lost. You you, you will give yourself over time and again to powerless priests who can't really make you righteous and who will die and leave you hopeless in the wake of that. So come to Jesus, your perfect and powerful high priest. He alone can make you righteous. He alone can remove your sin. Dear friend, make that commitment today. Let's pray.